You're listening to The Real Well Show with Kathy Fetke, the real estate investor's resource. When you sell a property, you either have to pay capital gains tax if you've held it for over a year, or you would pay ordinary income tax if you sell it within the year. So I imagine if you don't want to pay as much taxes, you would hold the property for over a year. But what if you don't want to pay taxes at all? Well, that's when you do the 1031 exchange. I'm Kathy Vecchi, and welcome to The Real Wealth Show. So the IRS gives us this wonderful tax break called the 1031 exchange, which means that you can sell your property, and as long as you buy a replacement property of equal value or more, with the same amount of debt on it or more, then you're basically not having to pay that capital gains until you eventually sell that replacement property. Now, if you hold that replacement property until you die, well, right now, current tax law says that the value of the property steps up to current market value and your heirs would inherit it and not have to pay the tax. So it's a really interesting opportunity for investors and one of the many reasons that people love to invest in real estate. So I know there's lots of questions from our Real Wealth members about 1031 exchanges and how to prepare for them, how to do it right. So that's why I've invited an expert on the topic on today's show to tell us how to do it right. Dino Champagne is Vice President and Division Manager of Asset Preservation, Inc. She has over 20 years experience in the qualified intermediary industry facilitating over 15,000 exchanges nationwide. So I'd say she knows a thing or two about this. Dino, welcome back to The Real Wealth Show. Well, thank you, Kathy, for having me. I appreciate the opportunity to chat with you. It's always good to talk about how people can save taxes, and the 1031 exchange is absolutely one of those ways. And it's still here. Tell me about that. I know it's been challenged, but it never seems to go away. Well, that's the good news, right? The never seems to go away part. Uh, yeah, so far we've uh, we've been you know we've been able to get past uh, you know being either reduced or eliminated at this point uh, with the most recent passing of the bill over the weekend. Ten thirty ones were not a part of it, so 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 far so far so good. Uh, but as you know, as an industry, we're very, very diligent in making our cases to why there's such a valuable tool. Uh, for, you know, taxpayers. Uh, and so, you know, we still be able to maintain our, uh, our existence. So that's what we're happy about. Yeah, it's interesting, because obviously, people not in real estate or who are not doing a 1031 exchange, assume that it's just a, a tax loop for the wealthy, but it does affect the economy. Can you just summarize that? How you see that to be true? Yeah. It, well, you know, what's interesting is a lot of people look at, like you just said, they look at 1031s as for the wealthy. Uh, and I would have to say that probably, this is my guesstimation, but, you know, 70% of the people that we're doing exchanges for are the typical mom and pop investor. You know, they're not your institutional type investors that the that majority of the 1031s are done with. So you've got people that have taken advantage of having investment real estate, you know, they want to maintain and continue to grow their portfolio. So when we talk about, you know, how it does affect the economy, well, it affects the economy in several ways. Uh, one is I know while it's deferring tax, okay, what it does is it, it creates jobs for people that are lending, for escrow companies, for title companies. 
Uh, it gives people, you know, a place to to live. I mean, so, you know, this is how I see it affects the economy. So it's not something that takes away from the economy. I think it's something that actually helps grow the economy. And then statistically, yeah. they said, you know, over the course of ownership, that ultimately people end up cashing out. So it's not like the the IRS or the, the taxing authorities at the state level never receive any funds. They just may get it a little bit later. But, um, you know, it's a good tool and people are utilizing it and should. Well, and it helps seniors, too, because if you've owned a building or a property for many, many years, maybe decades, and then suddenly you find yourself unable to um, pay for the maintenance of that property, but you could sell it, a new investor could come in and make those changes and, and bring in more money to to renovate. Uh, and the person selling can maybe get into something newer that requires less work on it. Um, so, I mean, do you see that happening where it's better for seniors? You know, it's interesting that you bring that up. Uh, yeah, because when you think about seniors, you want to maintain having some income, right? Because once you get to the point when you're a senior, you're obviously either getting close to retiring or you're already there for retirement. So investment property is one way to subsidize the the uh, your Social Security, any other kind of 401k that you might have. So, yeah. So and then I agree with you with the, you know, the maintenance side of things as, as you get older. Yes, you want to maybe trade out of something that is starting the wear and tear is starting to come in and more repairs like anything is, is going to come into play and then exchange out of the older property into something that is you know, say new construction or something recently built where your maintenance is going to be somewhere down the road, not immediately. So. Yeah, so I, yeah, I think 1031s for seniors, especially as looking on the horizon, it, I mean, just to me from the cash flow perspective, <laughs> you know that you've got those funds coming in to help subsidize anything else that you might have used. Uh, you've had to, you know, help you through the retirement years. So the last two years, you must have been really busy <laughs> assisting lots of people who were selling maybe at the peak and, and maybe exchanging into other markets. I mean, what, what have you seen over the past couple of years that investors have been doing? Well, that's an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> to say we were busy is, a, is like I said, an understatement. Uh, what was really interesting is when the whole COVID thing came out, you know, we saw people tapping the brakes the, the first month that it came in, and then it flattened out the following month. But when it got to, to May uh, of 2020, things just started to go and go and go. And the market has been absolutely insane. I mean, the volume was in, super intense. Uh, you know, we're starting to see now that that's pulling back a bit and it's going into a more normal paced market. But we were extremely, extremely busy in helping people facilitate exchanges during this crazy time. <laughs> so it surprised me, but it was a, a, a nice surprise. You know, so, yes, it was absolutely very, very busy <laughs> for the last two years. Were you were you seeing some people having huge sales, big, big sales of properties, say, of apartments that where they made millions. And then did you see that they might have had difficulty finding replacement property? Well, that, yeah, that for that, not only that, but for just about every, every category, pretty much, uh, that was part of the challenge with finding the suitable replacement properties for the exchange, because you had such a heated market that there were so many buyers coming in uh, to come, you know, to 
and you became when you're doing an exchange and you, you have limited time to get what you needed to get done. So that was a huge concern. I mean, that was that was a daily conversation uh, on with numerous people being concerned about, well, where do I find, how do I find my replacement property? And it was stressful. There was no doubt about it, uh, especially when you had 20 and 30 offers on a property and people didn't even get a chance to try to put a bid on a property. And we saw a lot of properties, as you probably have seen yourself, where the prices were overbid by a hundred, hundred fifty, five hundred thousand dollars. I mean, they were crazy numbers. Mm-hmm. So that was a, you know, a difficult time with especially with the volume that we were dealing with. Uh, that seems to be still somewhat of an issue because and you're the expert at this because you track this far, you know, far closer than I ever would, but the inventory levels are still probably not to the normal. So people are still having some challenges in that where you don't have enough inventory on the market. So it, you know, so if people are preparing themselves for this kind of a transaction, hopefully what they're doing before they get their property on the market, that they're looking to see where they want to reinvest and to start scoping out that market, you know, uh, well in advance of their transaction. So inventories are still low. Uh, but, you know, people are seeming a little to be able to navigate their way around a little bit better. Yeah, we we started advising people just to identify a DST or I told people we've got lots in our Discovery Ridge project in Park City that they could exchange into and hold for a while until they figure out what they're going to do or when the market calms down a bit. Uh, but let's talk about the rules what do people need to know or what do they often not know when they come to you and are thinking about doing an exchange? Uh, okay. For the, the rules for you talking about the identifying or just the basic. Let's start with identifying. Okay. Uh, because when you're talking about the 1031, where everybody, you know, probably is familiar with the time frame. you've got 45 days from the date of closing as to which, you know, uh, to identify the property or properties. Uh, what people sometimes get a little confused is, is the rules, you know, because there are three specific rules. Uh, when somebody is facilitating an exchange, there's there's only one of the three that you can select from in order to comply with the guidelines for the 1031. The first rule, which is the most commonly used rule, is known as the three property rule, where you're physically limited to three addresses, but you're not limited to the dollar amount. If the taxpayer wants to identify more than three addresses, now they're going to go out of the three property rule and they're going to default to the next rule, which is known as the 200% rule. Under the 200% rule, the taxpayer can identify four or more addresses. However, the aggregate values of all of those properties that they're identifying cannot exceed two times the sale price. Now, sometimes, Kathy, people get, they'll go on the internet and they'll read, they'll go, okay, well, I I know I can identify, but I can't identify more than 200% of my sale price. So we have to clarify that. So let me just restate the three property rule, unlimited dollar amount. So you don't, you're not restricted to two times your sale price. It's only when you identify four or more that you're going to be limited to the aggregate values to two times or 200% of your sale price. In the event you exceed the 200% and you've exceeded the three properties, 
you're now into the third and final rule, which is known as the 95% rule, which means the taxpayer has to close on the aggregate of 95% of the aggregate value of all the properties identified. So I put it very simply, you have to buy your entire list. So it's so important for the taxpayer to stay either within the three property rule or stay within the 200% rule. A lot of times when people are asking me about this, I'll go, where are you selling? What's going to be your sale price? Where do you intend to purchase? And what are the values of the properties you intend to purchase? So I try to help them and say, you're going to be in the three property rule based on what you sold for and what you intend to buy. So that way it keeps them out of harm's way because you can easily skip from the three property rule to the 95% rule if you're not careful. And that's going to be very, very dangerous for the 1031. Now, another component people sometimes think it's okay to do, well, what if I just put down a bunch of addresses and then go buy whatever I want? It does not work that way. When you're doing a 1031, you can only purchase the property or properties that you have identified on your list. So in other words, after the 45 days, you cannot go off and buy something else that's not on that list. So that's why the 45 days in the 1031 and understanding the identification rules is going to truly help toward the success of the 1031 transaction. It's the hardest part to the uh, to the exchange, but it's one that's going to keep your exchange, you know, safe if you do it properly. Yeah, and the mistakes that we've seen within our own network is people not identifying enough property. So sometimes you maybe identify one, you think this is the property, this is going to meet the exchange, but then you find out, uh, you know, maybe after inspections, it's not. You don't want that property, but now you're past the 45 mm-hmm. days. Or people would get into contract on new homes that didn't have their CO yet. So you can't close on a property that doesn't, I, I don't think, doesn't have its certificate of occupancy. So if you can't close, you know, you, you don't meet the exchange and you pay your tax. I mean, what, what kinds of things have you seen that um, didn't work out for people when they identified yeah. too few properties? Yeah. Got it. Yeah. What you've identified, you've described something where people get caught up. And so I like, this is my, this is my property. This is what I'm going to close on. Like you said, they're, they're, here's what happens where people get into the latter part of the 45 days. Okay. So they found that property. They're going to put on the list that particular property. If they fail to put any backup properties, then you're going to run into what you talked about, where maybe after they've done their due diligence and all their inspections, they decide I'm not going to buy that property. And now that property, that time is after the 45th day. So now what do you do if you have no backup properties? So, you know, you try to encourage folks, if you're not sure that this is going to be a home run, maybe you put one or two more properties in the identification in the event you need to pivot to that property if something goes wrong with your, your, a, your a property. All right. So sometimes people might put that DST that you talked about a little bit earlier Mm -hmm. as a backup property, because that's something that's usually going to be available in the event that you need a backup, where if you put maybe a couple of other addresses, you have to hope that they're they're ready. Now, to your other point in regards to new construction, um, certificate of occupancy is not necessarily a criteria, if you will, for the closing. 
However, and I'm going to say this slowly because I don't want people running off thinking, oh, I can just do this. Uh, well, you've got yeah. lenders involved, right? So if there's a lender involved that is financing the replacement property, and if there's a lender happens to be involved for the developer, they're going to want a certificate of occupancy before they're going to close on the deal. So I had a few months ago, uh, there I had uh, three deals that basically failed because they couldn't get the, con- the construction wasn't completed by the 180th day. So because the cabinets couldn't get in in time, so therefore there wasn't any way to get a certificate of occupancy. The lenders were not going to lend. So there were just uh, you know, a host of things. Uh, I have to say, fortunately, that's the, the minority of transactions, but it does happen. So if you're looking at new construction, especially in this particular market, you want to either get that property well under <laughs> contract before you even maybe put your property on the market for sale, so that the construction is being dealt with while you don't the clock's not even started. And then when you close on your sale, then hopefully you only have maybe a three months or so before you know the construction is complete and you can successfully complete your exchange. So if you're venturing into any kind of new construction uh, acquisitions, you better be very careful of that 180 calendar day time frame. Yeah, tie it up soon. And I learned that last time we spoke is that you can use personal funds to tie it up, right? You just have to close with the exchange funds. Is that right? Right. Yeah. And I, a couple of things that I've, I've seen pop up too uh, is some developers, all right, that uh, people are buying from, they may not be cooperating with 1031s. Uh, so I've seen that on a couple of transactions. So if you're, you know, if they're going to a developer, you know, make sure that that developer is cooperating with 1031s or accepting 1031 buyers, because I've had it happen on a couple of occasions uh, where people thought they had a deal and they found out they didn't because the developer wouldn't cooperate with the 1031. Wow, I had not heard that. Another thing that people don't realize maybe is that you have to have the same amount of debt that you had on the property you sold on the new one. And sometimes people do these exchanges when maybe they're not working anymore. They don't have that same job or the same income. And suddenly, suddenly they find themselves unable to get the financing they need to complete it. Have you seen that happen? Uh, yeah, actually, uh, fortunately, it's not a lot, but it has mm-hmm. come up. I mean, I've been doing this for 20 years, <laughs> so yeah. I've run across a few things. Uh, but every day is a new day. <laughs> okay, there's always a new twist to the day. There's, so there's always seems to be a question or an item for the day that comes in. Uh, but yes, uh, so if somebody has been in a position where they haven't needed to acquire any financing, and then all of a sudden now they're selling a property that they have to deal with replacing the debt, there's two ways to replace the debt. One is getting a new loan when they buy the new property. And the second, which is probably not your most ideal, but that's where you're bringing in cash from outside of the exchange to replace the debt. So in other words, if they have a $100,000 loan that was paid off and they don't, they can't, you know, they can't qualify for any new financing, but they have $100,000 sitting in their savings account, then they can bring in that $100,000 to replace the debt. So there's two ways of doing it. Um, but you know, if they don't, if they can't, then we're going to go back to the DST again, because with the DST, they have debt and you don't have to qualify for the financing. And so I've had people that have utilized the debt component for the, D, uh, for the transaction uh, through, uh, through a DST because they don't have to personally qualify for any financing. So okay. there's other qualifications for the DST, 
but it does come up where, yeah, some people might have a slight challenge in getting financing. So to me, when you're getting ready to sell your property, if you haven't been in the financing arena for a while, you probably want to start talking to a lender to find out, you know, are you going to be lendable? <laughs> are, yeah. are you going to be able to get that financing? Find that out before you put yourself into a position where, uh-oh, <laughs> I yeah. can't replace the debt. I've got mortgage boot, which is taxable. And then now, uh, you know, I've got a tax liability I wasn't anticipating. Exactly. Another issue is titling. We get it all the time. People saying, can we invest in your fund or, you know, in any, any syndication? It's like, no, it has to be same title to same title. Correct. Yeah. So when you're talking about fund, I'm not sure if you're talking about a, when you said syndication, you're talking about going like into a partnership yes. or you're talking about a, an yeah, LLC. Okay. Yeah. See, that doesn't work for a 1031 period because you're not the taxpayer. You can't buy membership mm -hmm. interest into a syndication like you're describing, but you know, you can go into a DST, which qualifies. But if you go into uh, a partnership where you're putting money into a fund that's building a project, that's not going to work for the 1031. Okay. But other, but, but you can do a TIC. A right? a TIC. would be fine. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That works. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. As long as you're doing something yeah. like that, where you have an undivided fractional interest, then that would work. Uh, but when you're talking yeah. about vesting, we see that not only, you know, in just the, the scenario you described, but just in the general 1031 transaction. So what happens is, is people buy property, say single, you bought a piece of property, and then somewhere down the road, you got married, you never bothered to change the title, and now you're selling the property, and then you have a spouse. So how are you taking title to the new property? Or, for example, somebody, husband and wife, for example, uh, created an LLC where they've elected to be uh, treated as a partnership. Now they, they didn't change the title to reflect the new tax owner. So these are the kinds of things that are so critical. And we run into this situation more often than you would think. So if you're thinking about selling a piece of property in a 1031, you really need to look to see. How are you you're showing on title to the property that you're going to sell? Does it match how you're reporting it on your tax returns? If it doesn't, before you get that property listed, now's the time to start correcting these issues or getting it into the proper order. So looping in your tax advisor is so important because that person's going to give you the guidance of what they want you to do in preparation for the sale. You get it done before you even put it up for sale. Now you then going forward, you know how how you have to buy the replacement property. So vesting and title issues are a big issue when it comes to 1031s. It's almost been epidemic, <laughs> to say the least. I can imagine. Yeah, I know. I had a friend going through a divorce, and it was like, wait, how do we do this? We're, we're not married anymore. <laughs> yeah, you're not married anymore. Okay. And then some people that are going through a divorce, they're still in going through the divorce mm -hmm. uh, and trying to do a transaction where there's still the divorce is not finalized. That can be some issues when you're dealing with that. We had some situations where uh, the language in the divorce was not clear enough uh, where they thought, you know, they had two properties they were selling. 
you know, it wasn't clear enough. And they basically said, no, we're going to take the cash from this property, uh, which was the investment side. And it created a whole, it, it, it blew up the possibility for the exchange. So these are real issues when it comes yeah, to Yeah, yeah. You always want to talk to your CPA before And your divorce attorney and make sure they, they do, the two are talking together so they can get yes. proper language. Because let's face mm. it, divorce attorneys are generally not specialists in real estate, you right. know, uh, and they're certainly not CPAs. <laughs> so rarely right. they are. I, I've never met one that is. But anyway, um, mm. so you want to make sure that you're, you're they're talking to each other to get it where you're not going to have any, hit, uh, any issues when you get to the end. And finally, uh, what? How do you determine the value of the of the property? Let's say you you bought a property for a hundred thousand dollars, put twenty thousand into it to renovate. Does that increase the basis, the tax basis of the property to one hundred twenty thousand? So that then, when you do the exchange, you're exchanging one hundred twenty versus purchase price. I mean, how does that work? It depends. <laughs> <laughs> Great answer. The favorite answer, right? It depends. All right, it depends on what that twenty thousand was consisted of. What you know, because maybe it's a combination of capital improvements and a combination of repairs. So those are two things that are treated differently on the tax return. So if you're putting in, if you have to put in, for example, like a new roof, then a whole new roof. So that's pretty pretty much a capital improvement. Uh, but if you're just repairing something, is that considered a capital expense. So, you know, generally we look to the CPAs or the tax advisors to determine what that number is going to be. But you're right, if it's considered a capital improvement, that would add to the basis in the property, which means, you know, that your gain is probably going to be a little bit less because of that adding to the basis in the property. Uh, You know, and but if it's considered a repair, then, you know, that's not going to change anything to the basis. But if you're in a 1031 transaction and you spent that $20,000, which just comes up quite a bit, I had to, you know, I had to put this money into the property to get it ready for sale. And I would say hmm, nine out of 10 say, can I get my money back? So what, you know, how can I get my money back? Well, that's, a, that's an issue because any money you take out of the exchange is going to be subject to tax. If it's a capital improvement, there's no offset to that. If it's a repair, maybe your accountant can find a way to write off that that money that you're getting in as some kind of an expenditure to lessen your tax liability. So when you find yourself in a situation where you're making repairs, you know, and or improvements to a property prior to sale, you want to have this discussion with your tax person to determine, you know, can I get some of my money back? and have either the tax eliminated or mitigated. So you find these answers out early, then you know that which direction you're going to have to go. Some people find out that they just have to let it all ride into the next property. So these are things that comes up all the time. What about a wholesale fee? Let's say you buy a property again for a hundred thousand, but you have to pay a $20,000 wholesale fee. Does that count as acquisition price or do they just use the HUD? Well, when you say wholesale fee, give me a little bit more. Uh, so you're buying a property from a from a wholesaler and they're getting a fee. So it's, I don't know if it would be considered a sales commission. 
I would say that that would be something I would run across your tax advisor is okay. the cost of acquiring the property. So is it, you know, like real estate commissions, we know that are considered a cost of transferring property for a 1031. Mm-hmm. So would that also wholesale fee be considered something like that? You know, is it customary? So I would run that one past the tax advisor to okay. determine how that would be treated. That's great. Okay, we could talk forever, but we're out of time. Dino, thank you so much for joining us here on The Real Wealth Show. And people can get a hold of you. There'll be uh, show notes. There'll be information in the show notes on how they can reach out to you. But if you wouldn't mind just letting us know here. Oh, okay, yes. <laughs> my, uh, my office number uh, is 866-857-1031. My cell phone is area code 310-508-7367. And my email address is my first name, which is Dino, D-I-N-O, at apiexchange.com. Wonderful. Great to see you. Thank you. Same same here, Kathy. Good to see you again. And thank you for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show. If you'd like to find out more about how to get in contact with Dino, you can look in the show notes or go to realwealthshow.com and look under the resources tab and you'll see it there along with all kinds of resources for accountants and property managers and professionals who can help you on your real estate journey. That's at realwealthshow.com. We also have extended webinars there answering more of our investors' questions. I'm Kathy Fedke, and thanks so much for joining me here on The Real Wealth Show. See you next time. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to realwealthshow.com.